Do me a favor, turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19, verses 19 to 21. If you don't happen to have your Bible with you, it'll be on the screen behind me. And if you've been with us for any length of time, or if you've been maybe following along in the podcast, you know that we've spent the better part of a year working through this particular portion of Scripture, that is 1 Kings. Uh, And this is a really interesting book in the Bible because it's sort of narrating the history of the downfall of the kingdom of Israel. It's it's showing us how things fall apart uh, when the center can't hold. But being a book of history, it's also full of all of these just really weird things. Uh, Like there's a section in 1 Kings we went through probably probably three or four months ago at this point. And and as I was kind of getting ready for this sermon... All of the commentators on it said, this is the weirdest chapter in the whole Bible, and we don't really know what to say about it. Uh, And when you grapple with the Old Testament, you tend to come to all sorts of situations like that, where you're like, this is just really weird, and I have no idea what this has to do with anything else in the Bible. But what I hope is happening as we're working through the book of 1 Kings, which is a challenging book in a lot of ways, I hope what we're doing is we're seeing that even these strange bits of history ultimately find their resolution Uh, at the feet of Jesus at the foot of the cross. And in the last few weeks in particular, we've been looking at the life of this figure named Elijah. He's one of the early prophets in the life of the nation of Israel. He's considered to be the greatest of the prophets. You can look all throughout the New Testament. Elijah again and again and again is commended as being sort of the the prophet of prophets, Uh, this model of faithfulness, what it really looks like to follow God wholeheartedly. Elijah is that paradigm. But last week, or I guess two weeks ago, as we were working through 1 Kings, we found Elijah at kind of his absolute worst. Uh, He'd he'd just come from this victory at Mount Carmel. Uh, There'd been this decisive defeat of idolatry. Uh, But then the queen of Israel, uh, a woman named Jezebel, has essentially uh, placed him under the sentence of death. And so he flees into the wilderness. uh, And and at the end of his rope, he kind of hits this dark night of the soul, as one Christian theologian has called it. And he loses the will to go on. He actually says to God, take my life from me. I'm, I'm done. It's enough. But what I hope we saw when we, when we saw this particular season of Elijah's life is that even in the depths of his darkness, God still meets with Elijah. God doesn't leave Elijah to himself. God doesn't leave Elijah alone as he wrestles with these dark thoughts and, and this deep-seated sadness that sets in. Ultimately, ultimately, God brings Elijah to a mountain that First Kings calls Mount Horeb. That's another name for Mount Sinai. This place that God had met with Moses in the past. And in Elijah's darkness, God meets with him. Uh, He he invites him into his presence. Uh, He encourages him. But at the end of Elijah's time on the mountain, God reminds him that he's not done with the nation of Israel and he's not done with Elijah's work in the nation of Israel. And so he gives him three particular tasks that we didn't spend a lot of time talking about last week. But he says, one, I need you to anoint Hazael to be the king over Syria. Two, I need you to anoint Jehu to be the king over Israel. And three, I need you to anoint Elijah, Elisha, to take your place. I'm going to mix them up a lot tonight, just so you know. And then he sends him back down the mountain. This is important for us um, because Elijah has met with God, and God's encouraged him and strengthened him and, and restored him and restored his confidence in, in God's work in the world at the top of this mountain. But then he sends him back down and says there's, there's work to do in light of all that's happened. So for us, so often we have these experiences, maybe it's in worship, and you just have a a renewed sense of the presence and the love of God. 
uh, or, or a deep-seated conviction of sin, that, that maybe you had been numb to something for a long time and God kind of breaks through uh, your hard-heartedness, or, or maybe it's in a sermon that, that God speaks to you in a profound way or through a book that you've read, and you kind of have this mountaintop experience where you encounter God in a fresh way. It's important to recognize that's not just for you. Like That doesn't just happen so that you can feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. But God means for us when we have these sort of encounters with him to send us back down the, the mountain uh, for the sake of the world. And this is what he does with Elijah, which, which brings us to our passage for the evening. There's a lot here, so we're going to jump right in. Uh, would you hear the word of the Lord? It says this in verse 19. So he, that is Elijah, departed from there, which is Mount Sinai, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will go follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? He returned from following him, and he took the yoke of the oxen and sacrificed them. He boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose, and he went after Elijah and assisted him. So here's what we've got. Elijah has come down the mountain. He's going to anoint this man, Elisha, to take his place as the new prophet. And he finds Elisha working in a field, uh, plowing with what the text says is 12 yokes of oxen. There's a lot going on there. There's a whole lot of symbolism uh, that we're not going to spend a ton of time on, but it's kind of important to grasp this. Um, Again and again in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a garden, as a vineyard. Um, as a a plot of land, and God is the master gardener that's at work tilling the soil in Israel. And so you see Elisha in this plot of land, this garden, if you will, and there's 12 yokes of oxen representing the 12 tribes of Israel, and he's tilling the soil here. The implication being that, that Elisha is going to be one of the ways that God works among the garden of his people. But 12 yokes of oxen beyond sort of this sort of symbolic reality, that's just a lot Like, that is a lot in the ancient world. Most people are lucky if they have one yoke of oxen. So what that also tells us is that Elisha is not poor. Like, he's a fairly wealthy individual, and he works in the field. And as Elijah is walking by, he sort of tosses his cloak onto him, which seems really weird, uh, but Elisha seems to know exactly what's happened. What's happened here is this symbolic action of passing responsibility. What he he basically is saying and tossing his cloak over Elisha's shoulders is the responsibility that was once on my shoulders is now on your shoulders. So back when I was in, um, I guess I was early college, I was living with my parents. This was the last time I actually had cable because I'm not paying for cable in my own apartment. But when I was living with my parents, there was uh, this channel that every once in a while I would just get stuck on because there was nothing else. It's an awful channel. It's called VH1 Classics. Or it's just a bunch of like videos of the Beatles and terrible rock bands like that. Um, and every once in a while, they'd show movies on VH1 Classics. And there was this movie that they would always show that was not good. Like, I'm just assuming the only reason they showed it is because it's the only thing that they had copyright to show. And it's got like Mark Wahlberg in it, but it's like Mark Wahlberg in 1989. Uh, and then it's got Jennifer Aniston, I think, before Friends was a show. Uh, and Mark Wahlberg is this sort of obsessed like hair metal fan. And there's this one band that he really loves that's also not very good. Uh, But he knows all the words to every song. He's got like a tattoo uh, of the band's logo. And he's in the the front row at the beginning of the the movie uh, of one of their concerts. And he can hit every note. Uh, He knows all of the words. And the singer just looks exhausted. 
uh, and kind of calls him up on stage and he's like, you seem to know these songs, here's the mic. And then he just walks off stage. And then Mark Wahlberg becomes the singer of his favorite terrible 80s hair metal band. But there's this symbolic passing of the baton, this passing of rights. Hey, this mic that was once mine, it's yours now. You're in charge of the band. And this is, this is what's happening in this casting of the cloak onto Elisha. I once wore the mantle of prophet. This is yours now. This responsibility has been passed on to you. But there's something even more significant going on here that I think is important. If you'll remember, and maybe this, this doesn't ring a bell, but if you read the last three chapters again and again and again, Elijah keeps saying, either to God or to the leadership in Israel, I am the only one left. I and I alone am the only one left. I am the only prophet of the Lord. There's nobody but me. He says it twice on Mount Sinai. Uh, he says it once on Mount Carmel. And the implication is something to the effect of this, that that all of the weight of God's work in Israel rests on Elijah's shoulders. If he doesn't do it, nobody will. If he doesn't get it done, it's not happening. But here's what, what God says to him in saying, I want you to anoint Elisha. I know you think you're alone, and I, I know you think that all of this responsibility rests on you, but that's just not true. Like, my work in Israel doesn't depend on you. You are not the load-bearing wall in my kingdom. There are more people who are working I am working whether you help or not. And I think that this can so often kind of creep into our own mentality. We, we so often think like Elijah. Like I, I know so many people in, in my own life, in this ministry, we just wring our hands and wrestle with what college should I go to? Because God has a plan for my life, but if I pick the wrong college, then I'll just ruin God's plan for my life. As if the Trinity is sort of sitting in heaven and going, I really, really wanted to do something wonderful in Steve's life, but he picked UF. So, unfortunately, there's no hope for Steve, right? We, we think that somehow our, and I don't, I don't see, say this to be disparaging, but we think that our small decisions in the grand scheme of eternity have the power to utterly thwart or undo what God's up to in the world. But that's just not a, a biblical understanding of the way that God works, you know, we wring our hands over these decisions like God has a plan, and if I get off the tracks, then God's plan is totally undone because it all rests on me, and that's just not true. This is what Elijah thinks. If I don't do it, nobody will. It's all on me, and God says, no. There, there are more people in this nation that, that I intend to work through. But this also happens sort of in the life of the church and in ministry. I can remember the, uh, the first year that I was doing college ministry, in a really stupid decision, I booked like a four-week tour, like three months into my job. And Corey shakes his head because he remembers this. This was a horrible idea. And yeah, he knows because he was like 15 hours a week and he had to run the whole ministry without me there. Uh, but I, going up to it, I was like, it's no big deal. I've got some guest speakers lined up. It'll be fine. Whatever. And then I remember the first... The first night that service happened, because we were meeting on Friday nights at the time, the first night that service happened on Friday, and I wasn't there, I was somewhere out front of a venue in Arkansas, and I was looking at my phone, absolutely terrified of it, something horrible happening. Like, I was just paralyzed by fear, and I was like, somebody's going to die, something's going to catch on fire, the speaker's not going to show up, or everybody else who's supposed to listen to the speaker's not going to show up. And, and I was like seized by panic. And I think you may even remember this, Corey. I called you as soon as service was supposed to be over. And I was like, is everything okay? 
Please tell me people showed up. Please tell me everything worked. And as much as intellectually I knew like that the future of the church doesn't depend on me being there, there was this deep-seated sense of like, if I'm not there, it's not going to happen. It, it all rests on me. But that's just not true. And I don't say this to absolve you of the responsibility of being obedient. But I, I say this to you to absolve you from the crushing responsibility of thinking God can only work through you and that he's not working through other people as well. Listen, in, in this, what, what God is saying to Elijah is ultimately, in, in its fullness in the New Testament, the only load-bearing wall in my kingdom is the person of Christ. And, and God chooses to use all of us, but he does not have need of us as though he's not going to get the job done without us. Elisha knows exactly what's going on when Elijah uh, tosses his cloak over him. And so we're told that what he does is he runs after Elijah. He leaves his oxen behind and he says, let me kiss my father and mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah says to him, go back for what have I done to you? Uh, This should sound familiar to you because there's more or less an exact parallel in what I read for you from Luke before we started our time together in 1 Kings. The, essentially, the, identi- the exact same thing happens to Jesus. Uh, that Jesus calls somebody and says, follow me. And the person says, let me go say goodbye to my family first. But Jesus responds very differently than Elijah does. Like Elijah says, sure, whatever. It's this weird phrase. What have I done to you? Go, go on back. And Jesus says, anybody who looks back isn't fit for the kingdom of God. So what's the difference? Why, why is the response not the same? I think the response is different because the nature of the request is different. So in 1 Kings, Elisha is ultimately asking, let me take the steps necessary to follow God's call on my life wholeheartedly. Let me, let me set my affairs in order so I can do this with reckless abandon. But what it seems is happening is you look at all the other examples that sort of surround Jesus in uh, chapter 9 of Luke is that the, the person asking Jesus this is really just looking for a way to stall because they're afraid of what it might cost to follow Christ. The difference between let me take the steps I need to do this well and let me procrastinate as long as I can so I don't have to do anything at all. So an example. Um, for the better part of like a year and a half, I have been trying to eat keto, uh, which is this, this crazy diet that for people who actually do it, it seems like it really works, although I'm convinced in 20 years we're going to find out that it's really bad for you because nothing that works like this should actually be good for you. When I first heard about this fad diet, I said to myself, I would like to try that. Here's some problems. I'm in between paychecks. My fridge is full of Tostino's pizza rolls, and I don't have any money to buy keto food. And so I said to myself, and I think this was a reasonable statement, I said, I will try this in a week and a half when my next paycheck comes in and I can actually buy the food I need to stick with this diet. That, I think, is a reasonable approach to this crazy fad diet that's probably really bad for you. Okay, but the reason why keto hasn't worked for me is because I only last three or four days at a time on it. And and here's what ends up happening. I say to myself, you know, this is really hard. And I bet it would be easier if I started on a Monday instead of a Wednesday. So, uh, because I mean, there's, there's some symmetry to that and, and the human mind recognizes patterns and, and I, tr- I invent this like fake scientific theory in my head and I'm like, this is how I'm gonna do it. 
I'm going to just give myself two or three days, and I'm going to eat checkers all day, and then on Monday, I'm really going to start this, because that makes sense. Or, or as in last Thursday, I said, on my way home from this ministry, I, I haven't really been sleeping well lately, and if I stop at home to make keto food, I'm not going to go to bed till one or two in the morning. That's probably bad for you, too. It would be much better for my health if I got some French fries and ate those, and then tomorrow I started, right? I invent these bizarre, like, pseudoscientific theories. Why? To delay what I know is going to be difficult. There's a difference between me saying, I don't have the money to buy the food I need to be on this diet, and let me come up with some excuses for why I'm not actually going to stick with this. I think this is the difference between the two. Uh, the man in First Kings, Elisha, he says, I am all in. Like, I, I, I will follow you and heed the call of God on my life. Let me just get things in order. Let me wait till my next paycheck, and then I'm all in. But, but the man in Luke and the people in Luke that are listed, they're all stalling. They're saying, let's try this again on Monday uh, because maybe there's some scientific thing about starting diets on Monday. And I wonder how many times in our life or lives collectively that we do this. Like, I, I would venture to say that for some of you, you've got really, really good reasons, and I think sort of a mark of Christian wisdom for maybe delaying what God is calling you to. So, for example, you feel like God has called you to oversee missions, but you've got $10,000 in debt. And you say, I-, I can't do that until this debt is paid off. That's not you being a bad Christian. That's you being a wise Christian. That's you being Elisha in some sense and saying, I need to take care of this. I need to set my affairs in order so that I can pursue the calling of God in my life with reckless abandon. But, but then I'm sure that, that just as many of us, we know exactly what God's called us to do. We don't have good reasons. We're inventing them because we're afraid of what it's going to call us to. But Elijah is... Elisha, rather, is not afraid. We're told that he goes home. Uh, He takes the yoke, which would have been the wooden bar that binds oxen together, helps them walk in the same direction. And he uses the yokes to build a bonfire. And then he sacrifices the oxen, essentially has a barbecue and feeds his family, the wider community. And then he goes and he follows follows Elijah. There's a ton going on here. There's a lot that's taking place. Some things that are going to help us make sense of this. Uh, There is an exchange that's happening in Elisha's life. Because for however long he's been alive, we don't know how old he is, he has been essentially under the yoke of being a farmer. Like that is the yoke that has bound him, is this vocation as farmer. But something happens when Elijah tosses his cloak over Elisha's shoulders. He essentially puts a different yoke on him. He says, once you had the yoke of being a farmer, now you have the yoke of being a prophet. And so it's not accidental that he takes the yokes of the oxen and he burns them because he's exchanging one course of life, one way of living for another. And so he sets it on fire. But it's also significant in in that he does set everything on fire, which is probably not a good life model. Like I don't recommend when you change careers, you burn everything to the ground. But that's profound, because this has been his identity. This is who he is. He is Elisha, the pretty rich farmer. That's how he pays his bills. That's how he feeds his family, if he indeed has a family. And all of it 
he casts into the fire. It is a total break with who he was before to become who God has called him to be. And I wonder how many of us have, have chosen in some way to follow Christ, but, but the yokes and the oxen don't go into the fire for us, they just go into storage. Like the, the things that, that marked us before, whether that's drunkenness, uh, whether that's anger and rage, whether it's gossip and slander, all of these things that marked our lives before Christ, we don't actually do away with them. We just sort of set them aside until we're having a bad weekend and then we take them back up again. How many of us say that we've laid hold of the cross of Christ but still have our hands wrapped around hammers and nails? There is a decisive break in Elisha's life. This is what God's called me to do. This is who I am now. This is the new yoke placed over me. Everything else gets burned to the ground. There's no going back from this call. Um, one of the great missionaries in the last hundred years was a man named Jim Elliott, who ultimately died uh, trying to bring the gospel to an unreached people group. And one of the great gifts in the last hundred years has been that uh, many of his journal entries have been preserved. And so as he was wrestling with whether to stay here in the States or to go and to serve abroad, uh, he was recording the prayers that he was praying, the things that he was asking of God. Uh, and in this prayer journal of Jim Elliott, he, he actually says this as he's thinking about leaving everything behind. He says, Father, let me be weak that I might loose my clutch on everything temporal. My life, my reputation, my possessions. Lord, let me loose the tension of the grasping hand. Rather, open my hands to receive the nails of Calvary as Christ was open, that I, releasing all, might in turn be released. So often for us, when, when we step into the Christian life, maybe you've, maybe you've just become a Christian. Maybe you're thinking about the possibility of becoming a Christian. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. We do this with one hand wrapped around the yokes of who we were and another hand around the cloak of Elijah, who we might be if we step into what God has called us to be. I want to plead with you not to do that. Because we think that what's happening is as we hold on to who we were, we're, we're sort of preserving our identity, that, that we can still be who we were apart from Christ and we can also become who Christ would call us to be. That is not the path to wholeness. That's not the path to being complete. That's not the path to truly finding your identity. That's the path to a life divided, a spirit torn asunder. But for many of us, if we're being honest, what keeps us holding on like this, what, what keeps the oxen and the yokes in the shed rather than in the fire is that we are afraid of the consequences like the man in the book of Luke we're afraid of the difficulty and honestly I'm sure Elisha was afraid I mean this is his whole way of life this is this is not just something he did on the side this is who he is this is how he pays his bills and I think we're probably also afraid that we're exchanging one easier yoke for a much more difficult one. That, that following Jesus is going to be profoundly difficult for us. And, and we naturally follow the path of least resistance and we want what's easy rather than what's true. And I don't want to lie to you and make it sound like the Christian life is, is a cakewalk. It's not easy. It's, it is harder now than I thought it would be when I first believed. So, so don't hear me say that. 
And yet, at the end of all of its difficulty, we find Jesus in the words of the gospel saying, come to me, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. And at the end of all of the difficulty, we find Jesus saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So my plea with you, my appeal to you, is that you would, like Elisha, throw off the, the sins that so easily entangle, the things that have held you back, cast them into the fire. Follow Christ with reckless abandon. And take his yoke upon you. Walk in a newness of life. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we ask uh, now that as we come to your table, uh, as we come to communion, uh, Father, that you would remind us uh, that although things are difficult, and following you is, is not easy, Lord. It is good and it is right. And your yoke is lighter than the sin that so easily entangles us. God, I pray that you would uh, strengthen us now uh, through the elements. Uh, Lord, that you would convict us of, of the ways that we have refused to let go, uh, to follow you wholeheartedly. God, I pray that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. And I ask that you do this by the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.